Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Wemina, and it is a pleasure to be here today. I have an outstanding clinician scientist to introduce to you today. Her name is Dr. Stella Chow. Stella, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Stella, for our audience, would you please introduce yourself, especially in the context of how you came to be doing this thing where you're a clinician and a scientist at the same time? Sure. So I'm a pediatric hematologist by training who then got a fellowship training in transfusion medicine. So I practice both non-malignant hematology and transfusion medicine, primarily in pediatrics, but I do care for young adults as well. And I think really how I got here was pretty circuitous. I went to med school because I wanted to be a pediatrician. And um, during med school, I became interested actually in pediatric oncology. But when I came to Trump, I uh, was exposed to all aspects of pediatric hematology that actually piqued my interests in a different way. And um, probably the reason why I ended up in hematology versus oncology, honestly, is because for my second year during fellowship, I chose to join the lab of uh, Dr. Mitchell Weiss, who's now at St. Jude's. And um, I joined his lab to study a uh, disease that affects children with Down syndrome. So uh, patients with trisomy 21 who get either transient abnormal myeloblesis or myeloid leukemia. And at first, it really combined my interest in hematopoiesis as well as oncology. But I think in working with Mitch, I just leaned more and more towards hematology. And after I completed my fellowship, I ended up doing a transfusion medicine fellowship a few years later. And again, that was something that just was an opportunity that came my way and I decided to take it and met a number of people in the transfusion medicine community who sort of helped me make that decision. And since then, I have primarily worked more in the hematology transfusion medicine space, but the project I came to do as a second year fellow, I guess now it's almost 20 years ago when I joined Mish's lab. We still work on that problem in my own lab, but um, we have much better tools two decades later, I think. But it's interesting to look back and say, for instance, grants that I wrote as a fellow, what were the questions we were asking and trying to answer? And some of those questions are still unanswered and we're still trying to answer, which is part of science. But 
I guess my point is, is that I think I ended up here because of just different people in my career and then the different opportunities that came my way being at Choppin and Penn. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Now, I see in your story someone who was open to opportunities and someone who recognized and took opportunities. Can you tell me about what it was in your in your makeup, either your prior history or family history, your your experiences that allowed you to be that kind of person who just kind of took opportunities as they came? I, I think probably it's how I was raised. My parents were both immigrants to the U.S. I think people oftentimes look at me now and just expect that I had, you know, every opportunity in my lifetime. But my grandfather actually immigrated here and was a magician um, and then ended up having his own um, laundromat business, which uh, provided him with the means to then end up buying real estate and doing very well for himself. Um, but both my parents are not, do not hold college degrees. And so I'm actually the first generation of my family to have a college degree, which you can imagine is very different, especially now as my own daughter is applying for college uh, for this next fall, just the types of applications and the types of opportunities she has compared to what I have. But I think what my parents always instilled in me was that, you know, opportunities are in front of you. You just have to recognize when something's an opportunity and take it. And I think their opportunities were very different, right, than the opportunities that I had to take. But I think nonetheless, it sort of was a lesson in life that I think my parents imparted on myself and my four siblings, you know, just by their actions. They never really said those words to us. I think it was really by their actions and how they just supported us. And they always tried to do everything for us that would allow us to have every opportunity, even though we didn't always have all the means that we were, we, that other people in my school had. So I think that's probably where it's most grounded from. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I see just, it sounds like a family culture of looking for opportunity, recognizing it and seizing it when it comes, but also being prepared for the opportunity when it arises. And I think I've been really fortunate to be a place where people are very supportive. And I think that helps because you can try something and if you fail, they're fine with that and you can try to do something else. And so I think always knowing that you can try things and if you're willing to take a little bit of failure or you're willing to not have the expectation always that you will succeed in the way you think you're going to succeed, because I think that's something else that I learned along the way is what do we consider success mm -hmm. and what you might think of as success might be different from you know, who you report to per se. But in the end, I think that it really matters what you think is success and what you think brings meaning to what you do when you come to work every day. Wow. You said two things that are, that are really amazing. And I just want to come back to, so first you talk about failure and not being afraid to fail and, and the importance of having environments that allow you to do that so that you don't feel as if if you're taking a risk, it's an unalterable risk or you, you can't change direction. I want you to speak a little bit more about what that looks like, do you think, in today's environments for clinicians who are trying to 
you know, make this transition to research, do we have the same kinds of supportive environments today? I think so. I think actually over the years, there's been more and more support to, you know, take an idea, make it a question, write it in a grant, hopefully get funded, and then bring it to realization. I think there's uh, many routes that you might take, and some of them are certainly, you know, baby steps, whereas other things might seem like they are riskier. I'm really going to try this. But I think if you have the attitude that um, you can make it happen by garnering the right people to help you do it. So I think we never do anything by ourselves. We get the help from the trainees who are in our lab or the research assistants or the research coordinators who we work with to all the people who help get things done, you know, the core labs, our admins, our sponsored projects office. There's so many people who are involved. And then also the people that you look to as mentors and sponsors, I think they're you know that you have so many different places where you might be able to get help. But I do think people is a major facet. Like I feel like if I find that there's a challenging problem, I think I have the mindset of, well, let me find someone who probably can solve this problem and see if I can work with them. And I think sometimes you have to choose wisely, right? So sometimes you don't go to like be the expert. You go to someone who, you know, knows the field well, but will also have the time and the space to work with you. And I think most things that we do end up really being a team effort. So I think nowadays, more than even when I started out, collaboration is really something that that everybody supports and that institutions have found, you know, ways to allow for collaboration. So either they have small pilot grants for that, or they have seminar series that try to bring different groups together. So then you meet people on a regular basis that you might not have had that interest group not have come together. And then certainly it seems like most funding agencies do support collaboration, collaborative efforts. So I think that's a big piece of it. And I also think there is the element of being realistic. So for instance, when I started doing the work that has been done really in collaboration with New York Blood Center, with Connie Westhoff and Sydney Bevege, uh, looking at using molecular typing and uh, doing high-resolution typing at the RH locus to see how we could better match patients with sickle cell disease to their donors, I think we took baby steps. Like first we showed that it was important. And now currently we have pilot clinical trials in a small subset of patients who were actually providing genotype matched blood. And we knew that logistically we had to get blood from the New York Blood Center, which is at a depot in Long Island City to Philadelphia. And we know that patients reschedule or patients, you know, have other reasons why they might not come that particular day. Or if we have something that shows up in their antibody screen that day, and we might have to change course a little bit. So really we started out as a pilot study. And I think the next step will be um, to extend that study still as a single institution study before we can take it on to the next step, which is uh, a multi-institutional study. But 
you know, to do that will require even more collaboration. So we're going to need other blood centers aside from New York Blood Center being involved. We'll need multiple institutions who would be able and willing to participate. And there's probably a lot of other facets that we would have to figure out in terms of like information technology, how we're going to transfer all that data between different blood centers, different hospital sites, and then having patient data on one side, donor data on the other side. It's pretty complex. So we've taken in baby steps to, to be realistic. We didn't go from, oh, this is important to let's try to get this directly in the clinic. But I think in the end, you know, I hope that, you know, within my career that this is going to be something that's going to be available for patients because I think there's advances that are being made outside of the work that we're doing, which will allow methods that will allow us to sequence at a much more cost-effective way. There's probably going to be other work that's done. Um, for instance, there's a national group through the DHHS who's looking at an antibody registry um, for hospitals to report their antibodies. So in that sense, it's like trying to find a way where there's going to be a, a method to communicate information from different hospital sites about transfusion data, and that potentially would help be a platform for anything we would want to do in the future. So I think melding things that are things that you work on, but knowing like what everybody else is working on and seeing how that might help. I feel like I've gotten way far off. <laughs> <of things, laughs> but no, I'm trying actually, to bring it back. No, no, actually, I, I feel like you, I mean, you did a great job of just kind of, first of all, you, I think one of the things you did was go to like a 30,000 foot view and talk to us about how this is like big picture. There's so much going on. It's very complicated. And what you've succeeded in doing is taking something that's a small piece of it and then just advancing it just a little step at a time. And even now you are doing kind of collaborative projects, even between centers and talking about how that gets bigger. Multiple centers will need to be involved, multiple blood centers. And, and I think what you're talking about is just the cascading effect of the work that we do when we start small and not expecting, you know, because many times and, and Stella, you, you're senior enough that people look to you and they're like, oh my gosh, she's so successful. Look at all the awesome stuff she's doing. And what people miss is the baby steps that you took when you first started. And, and the fact that you still are taking baby steps and that's mm -hmm. what's moving you forward. And I think it's important that people recognize that. I think the other thing I love that you said at the very beginning is you talked about you talked about collaboration, but you didn't start with mentors. You started with those around you immediately. And I feel like, you know, you talked about your, your trainees in the lab. You talked about the research assistants. You talked about, you know, choosing specialized mentors carefully. And I really love that because sometimes I think there's a sense from, I think, especially people who are just starting out that there is one mentor, one senior person who's going to open the door and all things are going to fall in place. And I think many people are disappointed when they find that that doesn't happen. And I love that you started really with the reality of starting with who's around you, who's immediately available to help you. And when you look ahead to those who've gone far ahead, it's like who is specifically suited to help you, not just because of their expertise, but actually having the time and the interest to help you. So I, I love that you put so many things together. And I wonder if you wanna to speak to the whole piece of mentorship and how that plays a role in your advancement. I mean, certainly, I think I was also really fortunate because I had multiple mentors in my early career. So 
I chose to work in Mitch Weiss's lab and he was my primary mentor and he was a phenomenal mentor. He was a great mentor in the lab. He thought it was fun to come into the lab and show me how to to do things like literally hands-on. But at the same time, he was more than just an academic mentor. I think he is one of the few men who I have seen in science who really partnered with his wife, who is also a physician scientist. And I always found it refreshing to see his contributions to their family. So he would sometimes just have a hard stop at five o'clock because he was the one who was responsible to pick up his children from daycare. So I think his way of just balancing work and life as well was important to me. But he was also a sponsor. So, you know, I think one of the things that I always tell trainees that I interact with now is that you really have to find something that you love doing. And um, like you said, looking back now, I went through a period in his lab where I said, I'm going to finish my project and then I'm going to move on. (laughs) So I came to his lab without any basic lab research experience. I picked up a pipette the first time coming to his lab. And I didn't think that that was where my career was going. I wanted it for the experience, but not necessarily to run my own lab. And I would say that, you know, finishing fellowship, I thought that I was going to finish my project and move on. And he said, you have to do what makes you happy. Like, if this is not what makes you happy, then you should choose to move on. And I thought that at the time I would get a master's in clinical epidemiology next and move on to really more clinical research. But as it happened, just other forces that were happening in my life and being married also to a physician and having two people that would need the right choice of an institution in their next career steps. We stayed here and that was one of the reasons why I ended up doing the Transfusion Medicine Fellowship a few years later. But I think just finding what makes you happy is what's really important. And sometimes it's a little transition period. So I will admit, I wrote my KOE and I thought, you know, I have in my mind, like, I'm not exactly sure why I'm writing my KOE because I'm not really going to be doing this anymore, but I wrote it and then I got it. So then I stayed in the lab for a few more years. And I think, I think really what happened was it took time to gain more skills and gain more confidence in the lab, which I did not have initially because I did not have a PhD prior to my lab experience. And then I think what really catches you is you actually discover something and just the satisfaction and the joy you get of like discovering something, having like a body of work that you publish is quite satisfying. And I think that's probably what hooked me was like the high you get off of that. So, you know, I still do think of Mitch as, you know, a mentor, a sponsor, a friend, a colleague. He's been a wonderful person in my life. I also was really lucky that through him, actually, I met Connie Westhoff, who is a giant in the field of transfusion medicine and RH genetics. And she too was also a mentor and a sponsor. And and obviously we still collaborate. And even as she is moving on probably in the next few years, she's slowly trying to take on retirement. I still go to her all the time because she has this wealth of knowledge, which I'm convinced nobody else on the planet Earth has besides her. But she was also 
a wonderful mentor and a career advocate for me. And then I also had to mention Katie Mano, who was my clinical mentor in hematology. And she's the one who actually provided the opportunity of considering a transfusion medicine fellowship. And, you know, I think at the time, looking from her point of view, she saw it as a place where CHOP could probably use another person who was well-versed in both hematology and transfusion medicine. And she probably just saw certain things in me that seemed like that would be a good fit for me. And she was super duper right. So I think just having, I've just been really lucky to have people in my career who have helped me find opportunity and partly you know, I think because they've taken the time to like get to know me and really know me to, you know, help me choose the right pathway. I love it. I love it. One of the one of the things that really resonates with me as you're sharing is that you really had multiple relationships that were instrumental in your forward motion. And it wasn't it was mentoring relationships, but it was also the intersection between what's going on in your career, what was going on in your personal life and making things work. And so ultimately, I think what what I'm hearing you also say is just how you you have to look at everything in the context of your life, also in the context of what you enjoy doing, and then see what opportunities make the most sense for you. So then I'm almost hearing you say there's no cookie cutter way forward. And there is no one person or one thing that moves that that change that, that kind of is in charge of moving everything forward. It's just really integrating all the experiences that you're having to pick the thing that makes the most sense to move forward in. Is that fair to say? Exactly. Yep. That's what yeah. I try to convey to people. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah. now. <laughs> no, I like it. I, I love it because I think it's, it's that we are, we're hard workers as clinicians. I don't think that's anything that has to be said, but just even as we work hard, seeing what opportunities arise and not feeling like there has to be just one way, because then I think we could be disappointed. Right. Which brings me to what you talked about success. Let's talk about success. So what, what, did, what were you referring to when you talked about the different definitions of success? Well, I think how you define success, even just in the realm of, say, a clinician researcher, some might define success because they get promoted or they publish in a really high impact journal. For me, success is... I think success is doing every day what I truly love. I wake up in the morning and I think about what I'm going to try to tackle in a day. And, you know, you never get it all done, but you just have that motivation every day to go to work and get something accomplished. I think for me, the thing that's been the most meaningful is seeing, again, we're taking baby steps, but seeing how some of the work that we do actually impacts patient care and seeing that we're moving the needle slowly, but we're moving the needle. And I think for me, knowing that what we do every day in the lab or in our clinical research studies, there's going to be an outcome that actually matters is how I define success. Whereas on the other side, you know, we do some pretty basic stuff in the lab and sometimes we're successful too. We figure out, you know, what are proteins doing or we have a certain hypothesis and we, we're right in our hypothesis. 
And that's satisfying also, but to me, that's less satisfying than knowing that the work we do can impact patient care or patient outcomes. I think that's the part that drives me the most. And probably because I think I'm a clinician at heart and the questions I ask and the questions I try to answer for myself are really clinical questions at the heart, but just using different tools. Absolutely. And I feel like you speak to a lot of perspectives of clinicians because ultimately for many of us, we started out as clinicians first, and then we made this transition to research. And really at the heart of our, our clinical heart is, is making things better for patients. And so I hear you speak about the, the opportunities you have to make an impact in the lives of patients and seeing your research turn into that is very satisfying for you. I also hear you talking about success as success and enjoying every day, success and enjoying your journey. So not looking for the end goal, though you have a lot of wonderful things that you've accomplished over the course of your career. So you've gotten those things too, but not looking at those items as the things that define you as successful, but the fact that you're making an impact, you're doing work that you find meaningful, you're doing it every day, you're making discoveries that are are interesting and, and important to you. And I, I'm just hearing the the thread of personal daily satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what's really important because otherwise it'd be really hard to do our jobs where we're pulled in so many different directions and we have so many different responsibilities and um, we're just trying to always do our best in each of the different arenas, but we know that that's always challenging. It is. It is. And something that you didn't say that I feel like is part of the theme of what you're saying is you can't live somebody else's dream because that's very hard to do. And the fact that you're living your own dream allows you to manage all the challenges that are surrounding it and, and still move things forward. I don't know if you want to speak a little bit about that. I think the way I see it is I prioritize things. So I see like sometimes I prioritize based on, you know, what what I feel like I need to do versus what other people can do. So I could volunteer to say cover another, you know, clinic or something, but would that really be like the best use of my time or would I contribute the most to us as a group? And that's probably no. But there are other things that, you know, I know I can do. So for instance, somebody asked me to look at their specific AIMS page for their K award. And I know that's particularly important that I could potentially give them feedback at this stage, like where they still have a month to do it. And, you know, I prioritize that much higher. So I think you really have to prioritize what's really important. I think one of the challenges we all have these days is that there seems to be a lot of tasks that we all have to to do. There's endless emails about things that you need to like fill out or do. And it it can be, you know, onerous to get all those things done. But I think prioritizing them and then seeing where you can delegate things or seeing where you can do something quickly rather than spend too much time on it helps me at least manage the day-to-day so that I get to like spend time on things that I think are what's really important and what I really want to do so that you don't get overwhelmed by all that other task-oriented work that we oftentimes have. 
I love it. I found that I think you gave us some some kind of organization of type gems in, in all of that. One, you talk about working in your zone of genius. So there are many things you can do, but what are the things that you are uniquely qualified to do that you actually like to do? Another thing is recognizing that while everything needs to get done, everything doesn't need to get done equally well. And what are the things that you can drop your standards on, but still get done? And what are the things that you absolutely need to focus on? And then one thing you said also that I really, 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 I don't know, it gets me excited to think about is, is moving your work forward. And that's so important because if you don't move your work forward, nobody else will. <laughs> and other work needs to be moved forward. And you surely do need to be part of that as a collaborative person, but prioritizing the work that really means means a lot to you, really means moves your career forward is important. And I do think that many, many of us early on always think about, well, how do we, how do we satisfy the needs of everybody else? And then at the end of the day, we hope there's time to move our work forward, but it's really our work comes first. And then we find time later to, to move other people's work forward as well. Right. And I think it's particularly true because there aren't too many of us that practice hematology, transfusion medicine, and then have a particular skill set. So for instance, we had a project where we were making in vitro derived red cells from induced pluripotent stem cells that we genetically engineered to have specific RH variants or RH null. And I think what was special about that project was that I was sort of like a matchmaker in the sense that we had Connie Westhoff from the New York Blood Center, who's like an RH expert. And we had Gordon Keller from Canada, who's an expert in developmental hematopoiesis and pluripotent stem cells. And um, Jim Pallas at Rochester, who also really understands developmental red cell development. And then we had people from CHOP. So Paul Gadu and Deb French, who are longtime collaborators at CHOP, who work mostly on IPS cells. But bringing all that different expertise to like put together in this project was very unique because it was like little pieces of the puzzle and getting it all together. And we're still far from, you know, that's another goal of mine is in by the end of my career, I'd like to know that that work went somewhere where, you know, it's actually in the blood bank. We actually have reagents that we developed in the blood bank, helping us to facilitate antibody identification. Or maybe, you know, and this is probably a much higher goal, is that we see the RH null cells that we created actually get to a place where we can make enough that they can be used. I don't know for transfusion, unless we're going to transfuse neonates with them, but as like a drug carrier or something where you use it for immune modulation, but something in the clinic. And I think it has like a certain utility. I think, again, it's, there's so many aspects of it, which we're good at some of those aspects. And I'm still looking for, you know, collaborators to help with some of the other aspects of making it a reality, but it's, Again, bringing together all these different people that have different expertise is one of the most enjoyable parts, I think, of, of the work that we do. I love it. It's, I love how you use the term matchmaker. It's recognizing where you're strong and where you're not strong, and then looking around to see who are the people in your network that can fill the gaps. And even if they're not in your network, you've 
you know, how do you expand your networks to fill gaps that allow your work to move forward because you can't do it by yourself. So really speaking to the power of collaboration. Yeah, that's, that's really awesome. Well, Stella, we're coming to the end of this time and I really want you, if you could just, you know, speaking to someone who, let's say we have a clinician who's in their early fellowship years and they're like, well, I've never picked up a pipette. I have no idea how I would contribute. I don't even know that I could be successful as a scientist. What would you say to them? I would say they 100% could do it. I think if you've gotten to this part of your career, you are motivated and intelligent enough to pick up a big pet in your you know, early 30s and you have many, many more decades to come. So I think they can definitely do it. I think, again, probably choosing the right project and the right mentor is, of course, critical. So choose a project that you know, sparks a real interest to you and choose a mentor who you really think you're going to connect with. So I think, you know, you have to find a mentor who will have the time to mentor you, who have ex- who has experience mentoring. But ultimately, I think just knowing if the two of you connect on a personal level, I think really matters because that person is should be someone you spend a lot of time with and who you're going to s- spend time with for probably the duration of your career, I think, if they're a good mentor. Um, so that's a really important aspect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Stella, if you don't mind, what about someone who says, holy cow, I owe so much money. Like, is this a viable career? I think so. And I think that recently there's actually been more programs that will pay for your educational expenses, at least for medical school in that sense. I was lucky because I had all of my med school loans essentially paid for by the NIH because I stayed in research. And that wasn't the reason why I stayed in research, but there are those opportunities. So, and I think in the end, we do come out with a fair amount of debt when you go to medical school. But I think that over time, you pay that down. And, you know, I think in general, we make a significant enough salary that you should choose to do something you really want to do and not worry about the debt because it will over time seem like a smaller and smaller issue. Thank you, Stella. I really appreciate you speaking to that. So everyone, you heard Dr. Chow, don't let debt be the driving factor for your career decision. You want to do something you love and then you figure out how to make everything else work and it will work you can make it happen. You're an innovative person. You've come this far in your career. You can make hard things happen. So definitely, if you want to consider this career or you're in the process and thinking of quitting, don't quit. You you have the capacity to succeed. So Stella, I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your words of wisdom. And it just was a fantastic, fantastic time. And I want to thank you for your time. Thanks for the invitation. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time on the Clinician Researcher Podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. 
As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do healthcare.